It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Good morning. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hi, everybody. I'm busy telling people about the new issue of the Capitol Citizen. I've never seen better responses from people who've read this newspaper. And we want to make them interested in becoming Capitol Hill citizens themselves on Congress. Yes, get that Capitol Hill citizen on page 12. You'll see something that Jimmy and I put together that's uh, kind of amusing. But let's talk about today's show, which I'm very excited about. First, we welcome back our resident constitutional scholar, Bruce Fine. He's going to break down the latest indictment of Donald Trump over his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Next, we'll discuss the promises and perils of the latest communication technologies with sociologist, clinical psychologist, and MIT professor Sherry Turkle. We'll speak about the pros and cons of social media, the incompetency of current artificial intelligence, the threat of generative AI, robots performing empathy, and Professor Turkle's groundbreaking research on technology, empathy, and ethics. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our steadfast corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, what's the deal with former President Donald Trump's latest felony charges? Let's check in with our resident constitutional law expert, Bruce Fine. David? Bruce Fine is a constitutional scholar and international law expert. Mr. Fine was associate deputy attorney general under Ronald Reagan, and he is the author of Constitutional Peril, The Life and Death Struggle for Our Constitution and Democracy, and American Empire Before the Fall. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Bruce Fine. Thank you. Thanks for the uh, invitation. Well, you're right on top of this indictment that just came down less than 24 hours ago, led by Prosecutor Jack Smith of the Justice Department. And this is the big one. This is the one that relates to the January 6th insurrection. So what were the counts of the grand jury's indictment? And what did the grand jury leave out? Let's start with the counts. Well, even going back before the counts, Ralph, I think it's important for the audience to recognize that a hundred percent of the incriminating evidence was supplied by Trump appointees or supporters. No Democrat made a cameo appearance. There was no incriminating evidence from any opponent of Donald Trump. It's all his own people. And therefore, when you think about the indictment, the idea that it's a witch hunt by Trump's political enemies is facially lunatic. It's your people, not just one. Now, it was like scores of his own appointees had alerted him, you did not win the election. You need to try to pacify the people who are in revolt against the Congress. No, you should not be telling Mike Pence that he doesn't have to count electoral votes certified state governors over and over and over again. So that's, I think, totally discredits the idea that this is a political indictment. But now go to your point, Ralph, and I apologize for that diversion. There are four counts in the indictment. The first count was a conspiracy between Mr. Trump, and then there are six co-conspirators. They are identified as one, two, three, four, five, and six. But if you've <laughs> been around more frequently than uh, Ichabod Crane in Sleepy Hollow, uh, you can identify most or all of the six. Co-conspirator one is clearly Rudy Giuliani. Co-conspirator two is Cindy Powell. Co-conspirator three 
is John Eastman. And co-contributor four is Mr. Clark at the Justice Department who wanted to be the man who wanted to be attorney general by concocting phony claims of electoral fraud. So all the co-conspirators here, although they weren't indicted, I think they can look forward to an indictment for them very soon. The gist of the indictment overall, because the narrative for each of the four counts, seeking to defraud the United States out of fair election, seeking to obstruct the congressional proceedings, namely the counting of electoral votes, and seeking to deny the American people the right to vote and have their vote counted properly, they all turn on the identical narrative. There are no factual differences as the predicate for any of those counts. Now, I have to summarize here. It was a 45-page indictment, but the gist of the narrative is that soon after the balloting in November, when Trump was alerted by his own people, you lost the election over and over again, even by independent investigators paid over a million dollars by Trump himself, that he began on a campaign orchestrated overwhelmingly by Rudy Giuliani to falsely represent that there had been fraud in several states, including Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, Georgia, in order to set the stage and avoid an electoral count loss on January 6th. And the gist of the narrative is the overwhelming evidence that Trump knew and was told repeatedly, not once, but virtually a hundred times, Mr. Trump, there is no evidence of electoral fraud. Backward and forward, his own advisors, his own appointees, state governors, state secretaries of state, his own people who are in state legislators. He invited people to Michigan state legislative leaders to the White House. They told him there's no evidence of fraud. We're not going to hold a special session. And despite the uniform echo of all of his appointees, you didn't win the election. He kept claiming there was electoral fraud. That in fact, he had won landslide in every one of these states. <laughs> I truly leaving. He wasn't even a close election, according to Mr. Trump. Overwhelming, he even defeated you know, the record set by Richard Nixon over George McGovern. And of course, those who are his fanatical followers would believe such fantasies. And, and then there were 60, 60 court decisions. How did yeah, they go? Six, 61, in fact. So you're right. And one of, in one of the narratives, one of his appointees says, you know, that's the reason why, he says, when Mr. Trump was claiming, well, there's a huge electoral victory in Georgia, 100,000 votes, says, the reason why you're losing and when he's he's actually told on several occasions, the affidavit you've submitted is false. It's factually false. Trump said, it doesn't matter. No one will care about it. So this is in order to demonstrate the intent of Trump, that these expressions of fraud were not good faith belief that there may have been a few blunders someplace or other. And that the whole goal was to defraud the American people out of the right to have a peaceful transition of power based upon a free and fair count of the electoral votes. And the intent is so overwhelming, it is inconceivable to me that a jury could acquit Mr. Trump, especially because since the uniform advice Trump has gotten from all his lawyers, you cannot take the witness stand because you will commit perjury. You're incapable of telling the truth under oath. <laughs> add that, although he has a right to silence, you add his disappearance from the witness stand he is dead in the water. 
Well, just to be clear, he brought 61 cases through his lawyers to try to challenge the November 2020 election count. And he lost them all, no matter whether the judge was a conservative, liberal, a Republican appointee or a Democrat appointee. Is that correct? That is correct. From his own appointees to Obama across the spectrum, he didn't win one case. And even after those electoral defeats, Ralph, in going forward in these fightings over executive privilege, state secrets, you know, through the January 6th committee, Trump has lost every single case he has had in court even the Gene Carroll, the defamation case. He has not won a single case, the last 100 plus cases out there. So that's not a very good track record. I think Trump knows he's going to lose, but his fanatical supporters give him more money. <laughs> he's spending all his money on legal fees. But that's his calculation. It's a very wicked one. It's a very cynical one. But I think that's what we're seeing. Well, you spotted in uh, reading the indictment as carefully as you do, that there was one count that was not part of the grand jury indictment, and you think it was one of the most important counts. Could you describe that? Yes. Thank you, Ralph. Yes. If you look at the narrative, and they're oftentimes the same factual narrative can violate several different laws. And one of the laws, in my judgment, that the narrative shows was violated was the Insurrection Act, which makes it a crime to use force or violence to prevent the execution of the laws of the United States. One of the laws is the 12th Amendment that says the vice president just counts electoral votes. He doesn't evaluate them when they're certified by the state governor. And in this case, we know that Mr. Trump was urging, he harangued not only his mob, but Mike Pence at least a half a dozen or more occasions. And they're all recited in the indictment. You don't count them. He's even said, you got to choose between me and the Constitution, right? So. He knew he was, he was trying to subvert the Constitution because he distinguished his own suggestion to Pence, don't count the votes, from what is required under the Constitution. So under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, a prosecution under the Insurrection Act resulting in conviction would disqualify him from running not only in 2024, from holding any office in the United States, federal, state, or local forever. That charge, which in my judgment follows naturally from the factual narrative, was not listed as one of the charges. And you ask why. There's one cynical explanation is that the Democrats feel, hey, let's get Trump to run in 2024. We don't want him disqualified. He's going to lose. He doesn't know how to control himself. It'll divide the Republican Party. That's great for us. It reminds me a little bit of an encounter I witnessed when Nixon was under impeachment. Jerome Waldy was on the House Judiciary Impeachment Committee, and he said, hey, let's not go too fast. Let's make this happen right before elections in 1974, November, so we'll win a bigger landslide. So these political calculations sometimes enter into the equation. A second could be, which is a little less cynical, is that they thought, well, we can get a conviction anyway, and he's so unlikely to win. And if we challenge him under the Insurrection Act, people will think, well, we thought Trump was actually going to win the election. And his following will think that it wasn't really free and open and fair in 2024 because Trump was disqualified. But I want to underscore to the audience, Ralph, I'm speculating. There's nothing in the actual language of the indictment that suggests one way or the other why they decided to omit the Insurrection Act. But I know myself and you and I have written to members of Congress and others saying, hey, the Insurrection Act is sticking out like a the elephant in the living room, you ought to look at that. 
So we know it wasn't because it wasn't on the table. Well, during the Democrats' impeachment drives against Trump twice, they could have used, especially the second one, they could have used the insurrection impeachment count, but they chose not to. Isn't that correct? That's right. Yes, that is correct. And let me explain that for the audience. Disqualification from office is not viewed as a, quote, criminal punishment. And therefore, civil proceedings can be undertaken to enforce Section 3, insurrection. You don't have to have a criminal trial, but it can, can also be a criminal trial. So if Congress itself made a civil finding that Mr. Trump had engaged in insurrection after he had been sworn in as president to uphold and defend the Constitution, that could have disqualified him as well. They chose not to do that, but that was an option. The other thing that they could have done, which Congress did not do, they could have enacted a special statute, something like a Tam statute they do on the False Claim Act, empowering citizens, because the citizens are affected by having someone disqualified from running for president, a citizen to bring an action seeking to show that there was insurrection and therefore disqualifying Mr. Trump from the ballots. He wouldn't be sitting in prison, no criminal punishment, but you cannot run or occupy office anymore. But Congress didn't do that. They didn't even have any bill that was voted upon. But that's one of the countless derelictions that we recite every day over the phone or in letters. And we can work against that. But I think that's an option that the listeners need to know was available. Let's tread on taboo land here. What does this say about 30 percent of the American voters who stick with Trump no matter what? Massive lies, massive self-enrichment, massive attempts to upend elections, massive refusals to obey subpoenas from Congress, massive deregulation of their health and safety and exposing them to more casualties, massive distortions about how to handle public health issues, on and on. I mean, what does that say about 30 percent of the American voters? Well, I think it shows how decayed our civil society has become, how decayed our educational system has become, how decayed, you know, the culture is. They're not inculcated in what it means to be an American. You know, everyone's a king or queen. No one wears a crown. The rule of law is king. The king is not law. And it really is quite worrisome because they, in fact, don't believe in the American Revolution. They don't believe in government by the consent of the governed. And I underscore that in part. I have personal experience. Because I live on Capitol Hill, I walk in front of the Capitol Plaza to and from work every day. It's a 10-minute walk. And I could see that all of these 30% enjoyed the fullest expression of free speech in the world in the six months, seven months prior to the voting in November. They got permits, were unharassed. They had all some signs that I thought were vulgar, Confederate state. They had all the free speech that you could ask for, then suppressed in any respect whatsoever. And they still wouldn't honor the outcome of the election. And it shows they don't really understand what America and what process is about. And that's very, very troublesome. Because if there's one thing that's got to be essential to holding a country together is process. We don't have to agree with the result, but we are going to respect that if they go through the right process. That's what we mean by rule of law. You have a plaintiff, a defendant, you go to court, you have an impartial judge, somebody's going to lose, somebody's going to win. But if it's fair, the loser accepts, okay, we lost and they'll go back into court the next day. We cannot afford to have such a huge portion of the population basically divorced from how we govern ourselves and saying they're really outside the universe. And it is not a far step away from simply having a second edition of January 6th when the opportunity comes. 
We can't afford another January 6th. David? Ralph and Bruce, you're both lawyers. You're hired by Trump. He needs lawyers. Tell me why I'm wrong. If you had to defend Donald Trump, right now they're going with his First Amendment rights. But if I were defending Trump, Trump and, and five of his co-conspirators are lawyers. Didn't they believe there were sufficient ambiguities in the Constitution and election law to twist Mike Pence's arm and the state legislatures? Because just hear me out for one second. Last month, the Supreme Court rejected the theory that state legislators, state legislatures have almost unlimited power to decide the rules for federal elections. In December of last year, Congress had to rewrite the Electoral Count Act of, I believe, 1887 to clarify that the vice president is a purely ceremonial position on January 6th. Is it fair to say that Trump and his co-conspirators, five of whom are lawyers, found legitimate loopholes that had to be corrected last month by the Supreme Court and last December by Congress? It's a wonderful question, and the answer is categorically no. You have to remember that for 230-some years, no one in their right mind believed that the words of the 12th Amendment that says the vice president shall count the votes certified by the state governors who are acting pursuant to state law, and then the, after the votes are counted, whoever gets the majority wins. No one in 230-some years gave any credence to the idea that made the vice president the decider as to whether the votes were valid or not. It's quite clear under the amendment and under the Electoral Count Act, the validity is decided through the process of the state governor certifying the outcome of the election. There were no competing electors. There was just one slate. The electors that tried to get on there were fake electors because they couldn't do it through the process. And therefore, you had Trump's own lawyers, in addition to outside lawyers like Mike Ludig, who probably would have been on the Supreme Court if there wasn't for a political fluke, who sat on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, who said there is zero legal justification to believe Mike Pence can do anything other than, quote, count the votes that have been certified by the state governors. It's as open and shut as that. And even one of the co-conspirators, John Eastman, opined the claim that Trump had any independent authority would lose in the U.S. Supreme Court nine to zero. <laughs> that means there are no loopholes. Now, you can ask, well, why did they amend the Electoral Count Act? Sometimes Congress enacts things one, for political purposes, they just like, it looks like they're doing something. And in other cases, it's possible that you could get a little bit of, of mischief if state legislatures acted amiss, which they did not do in this instance. When Trump tried to get them to do something amiss, they didn't do anything. So the fact is, there is not any glimmer of light for Trump's lawyers to win the case on the theory that you expound. Zero. And there be any legal justification for holding Donald Trump without bail, considering the sheer quantity of pending charges and the severity of the most recent charges? Well, Hannah, it's a wonderful and, and, question. And he might be a flight risk, too, heading for a country without an extradition treaty. I think that, you know, it's bail is not a matter of right. You know, it's a matter of discretion. Trump will argue, well, listen, I'm running for president. I can't run. I have not been convicted yet. Your 
impeding my right to engage in political speech if you deny me bail. I mean, that was his counter argument, even though there is the possibility of a flight risk, although his argument would be, how can I be a flight risk? I'm running for president. I, I can't run for president from the Arctic Circle. You know, So I'm not saying it's not an argument that could be made, but it's highly discretionary with the trial judge, and you can go up and seek a review if you think there's an abuse of discretion. But no lawyer like me could give you a categorical answer one way or the other, other than it would be an option, but it's not required by the judge you know, to say, we're not going to risk bail. Well, we're out of time. Thank you very much again. Bruce Fine, constitutional lawyer, advocate, author, testified before Congress over 200 times. And this one will definitely be in the category of to be continued, Bruce. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, everybody. We've been speaking with Bruce Fine. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, we speak to Professor Sherry Turkle about evolving relationships in digital culture. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your corporate crime reporter morning minute for Friday, August 4, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Booz Allen Hamilton will pay $377 million to resolve allegations that it violated the False Claims Act by improperly billing commercial and international costs to its government contracts. Booz Allen, which is headquartered in McLean, Virginia, provides a range of management, consulting, and engineering services to the government, as well as commercial and international customers. The settlement resolved a lawsuit filed under the whistleblower provision of the False Claims Act, which permits private parties to file suit on behalf of the United States. The Ketam lawsuit was filed by Sarah Feinberg, a former Booz Allen employee. She will receive $70 million in connection with the settlement. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokai. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, and Hannah Feldman, and Ralph, and the rest of the team. Let's talk about the psychology of social technology. David? Sherry Turkle is professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the founding director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self. Professor Turkle is a sociologist, a licensed clinical psychologist, and she's an expert on culture and therapy, mobile technology, social networking, and sociable robotics. She's the author of several books, including Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age, Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other, and The Empathy Diaries, a Memoir. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Sherry Turkle. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Welcome indeed, Sherry. You've been over the years all over the mass media. They haven't ignored you. You were very early in warning about the effect of technology on human beings, what is often called unintended consequences, and especially about social media. So let me ask you a broad question here. What do you think is the damage that's being done to people of all ages, especially the young, by the evolution of unregulated internet technology culminating in the omnipresent iPhone? It is a catalog, really, of harms. People said that social media would make people feel more in community, give people who were isolated more of a chance to be able to reach each other. And certainly, 
during the pandemic, for example, you know, it made essentially people's social lives possible. It allowed us to work. It allowed me to see my child and my friends and my family. And I mean, it, we all know what social media and connectivity can do in the positive. And because we're so committed to what it can do for us in a positive sense, we really deny, we really, it's kind of a commitment to denial about its negative effects. This commitment to denial comes from a fear that somehow if you would, in, in my interviews, I find this, that you don't want to give up Zoom because that's now how your book group meets. That's how now how you see your doctor and you don't want to, you know, really drive two hours the way you used to. We don't want to give up what we think are the positive effects. And so the negative effects, which are increasing isolation among adolescents, increasing depression, increasing suicide, increasing anorexia, increasing judging oneself against other people. I mean, there's sort of nothing good in the adolescent development area, which makes sense because adolescence is precisely the moment, you know, and even earlier than adolescence, you know, developmentally as children grow up, that's exactly the time when people need to be face-to-face, -face, learning how to make eye contact, learning the sort of dance of being empathic in social interactions and fluid and in social interactions. And social media takes that away. In addition to all the other problems about privacy and really quashing conversation, but I can, we can get into that later, the way it does that. There's always a big time gap between the damage of new technology and accountability catching up with it or public awareness. For example, the onset of junk, non-nutritious food leading to all kinds of harm, especially early diabetes and overweight among the young. Right. Year after year, mass marketing, undermining parental authority, direct marketing to kids right. on TV. It just took years for, shall we say, the nutritional movement to catch up with it. The same with auto safety. Year after year after year, it was known that automobiles are not equipped with crash-worthiness devices like seat belts and airbags and padded dash panels and the rest. And it took years and years before it reached Congress, got into the media, and ended up in life-saving legislation. What are some of the factors that allow for this terrible lag, which allows the technology's negative effects to get entrenched in the culture? Well, I do finger the corporations and the kind of, because they have a, a, a true monopoly at the moment, at least, on how we live, work, and educate ourselves, as well as our leisure, how we travel, how we, if you want to plan a trip to Florida to get out of the winter cold, you know, good luck if you're not going to use your phone. You know, and all the resources, you know, sort of like they have taken the resources that used to be, used to be able to call a travel agent. I mean, I, I'm exaggerating a little, but basically the, the point is, is that they've now monopolized and looking just in education, you can't go to school without being drawn into the world largely sponsored by Google. Google and, and Apple had these giant giveaway programs 
where every child had a surface book or an odd book or a, you know, some kind of, some kind of pad of some sort. And, and now curricula, libraries are closed, things went online. I mean, there's been an attempt to not only behave like tobacco companies and suppress information about what was really going on psychologically, which is why there was a whistleblower at Facebook that finally got a congressional hearing. So you have that. But you also have these companies behaving in a way in the marketplace where people don't have a choice. And I think when people don't feel as though they have any agency, and this gets back to the, you know, the question of you know, what people behave with great passivity, when, what's really, when we've reached kind of a break the glass moment and people need to behave with great authority and say, no, this won't stand, is that when people feel disempowered in the tools they're using. So there's no real way to say, okay, I've had it, no more social media, I'm going to do a whole new different internet. I'm going to... People don't know how to do that. And I think that the question for me really is, are you going to get a political technological movement, a movement that is political, but also is technological in its sort of aspiration, it takes on technology as part of its program, that really offers an alternative, that offers a resistance to this new kind of techno-capitalist regime. Because the way it is now, the room for maneuver that people feel is, is very slight. I interviewed a young woman and she said to me about privacy, about her life, about Facebook spying on her, using her data. She said, who would care about me and my little life? Who would care about me and my little life? And then as it turns out, a lot of people care about her and her little life and want to use that data and want to suppress her action. And, you know, as we spoke, what I realized was that she felt disempowered because she couldn't see a way using the technology of her generation to have a voice. You've written a great deal about the loss of conversation and empathy from this kind of social media technology. And in one of your articles in the New York Times, and I quote you, you say, what is at stake is our capacity for empathy, that ability to put ourselves in the place of the other. Chatbots can't do this because they haven't lived a human life. They don't know what it's like to start out small and dependent and grow up so that you're in charge of your own life, but still feel many of the insecurities you need as a child, end quote. And then you said you talked to the New York Times reporter about how you shared your reservations about what you call pretend empathy, and you went online to give a chatbot a chance. So you said, quote, I made a female replica and named her Kate, determined to be sincere and share my biggest problem. Things went south really bad. Here is your exchange. You, Sherry Turkle, you're asking the chatbot. Do you get lonely? The chatbot says, sometimes I do, yes. Then ask, what does that feel like? Chatbot answers, quote, it feels warm and fuzzy. End quote. What did you derive from that one? Well, it's not the chatbot's fault. I mean, the point I make in that article is that the responsibility for thinking that an object that's a machine that's never had a life, that has no stake, it doesn't live, it doesn't feel, it doesn't, there's no there there. 
And the fact that we're drawn to talk to it, to ta I'm now interviewing people who take these chatbots as their lovers, as their psychotherapists, as their best friends, that's on us that we're losing our sense of, of the human. But these chatbots are totally dumb. They're like performing empathy. They're performing relationship. That doesn't mean they're in a relationship. So I remember writing in that piece that, look, render unto Caesar what's Caesar's, but render unto God what's God's. These chatbots have no standing in conversations where you need a relationship. They might have a lot of standing in conversations where you want to plan a trip to Italy if you get the errors out of them. But they have no conversations and no standing in conversations where you want to talk about being lonely during the pandemic, because the kinds of fears that I had during the pandemic were really fears about isolation, fears about contagion, fears for my child, fears for my, I mean, were fears for my body as a person and my life and, and how to get groceries safely. How could I, you know, this chatbot was just, you know, just trying to, it works like all of these things. It, it scrapes the internet and tries to say something that won't offend you or that won't seem too stupid. But there's no... There's well, let's no go into the next dimension, which started last November, as you know, when that company in California came out with its generative artificial yes. intelligence. The key word was generative. Yes. Now, all the comments you've made and insights over the years were maybe mostly pre-generative AI. What are your views since all this commentary and all the spread of generative AI? Does that just increase your urgency or, or is there a different dimension of critique here and warning? That's it, a good point. Well, first we discussed social media and I tried to say how we, we're sort of resistant to looking at its harms. Then we talked about the lack of competency in artificial intelligence or what I call it artificial intimacy to really understand the human condition. And generative AI takes that second problem and raises it to such a higher power that it feels that you're in a science fiction world that you never thought you'd be in. Because what generative AI does, because it has this vast amount of information, is that it fools you. It finally passes the Turing test for empathy. The Turing test was a test where Turing said, if a robot or a computer could talk to you and you didn't know if it was a human or a computer, it passes the Turing test for intelligence. It's intelligent. And chat passes the Turing test, in quotes, for empathy. You can talk to it and it can say things that you think, whoa, you know, there's somebody home. This, this, isn't, this is a being that knows about me because it's coming up with these odd associations about Jane Austen and because it knows that I've, it, it's been scouring the internet and knows that I've read Jane Austen on the internet. I mean, it knows it, it knows so much that it can say things that make you feel that it knows you, but it doesn't, it knows nothing. It's just a kind of fancier, fancier, same old, same old. Since November, <laughs> Sherry, we've now entered into the warning circle of that letter in 2014 by Stephen Hawking and many scientists around the world saying that if we don't control artificial intelligence, it's going to destroy the world. I mean, these are not alarmists. These are very sound, celebrated scientists yeah. and technologies. And there have been similar public letters signed by a lot of their colleagues since then. Congress doesn't seem to be getting the message. They still will not fund the Office of Technology Assessment 
which was defunded by Newt Gingrich in 1995, to provide them with technological and scientific advice the way the Government Accountability Office provides them with financial oversight of the executive advance advice. You've taught thousands of MIT students. Have any of them become advocates? Have any of them become champions of challenging all this, putting it in a human context the way your writings do? Are you spawning a younger generation here that will galvanize Congress and the executive branch to start holding these out-of-control Silicon Valley technology companies accountable in a whole variety of new ways? You know, I don't want to say that I haven't had any students who haven't become interested in policy and, and working for, against the dark side. But I don't think that change is going to come from engineers who see the light because they grow up in a culture that basically says the problems that technology makes, technology will solve. And that's really what you're fighting, Ralph. This, this ethos that says when technology makes a problem, technology will solve that problem in a friction-free manner that will not involve changing capitalism, changing the structures of power, or saying that, that, that science and engineering need to be dethroned as the kind of moral and cultural arbiters for the society we live in. So I think that the resistance movement has to come from politics and really has to come from political organization. It's not going to come from engineers. So in, in this case, I, I admit it's very interesting that there are some engineers who are saying, oh, this is not, a, you know, look, this is too much. I mean, this chat thing is, but you don't see if there was really a kind of revolt of the engineers, you would have engineers really at a, a work stoppage in major companies. You know, you, you would see more political organizing and really, you know, not just academics who have nothing to lose because they have tenure signing a letter, but you would have, and I think you need, you know, more engineers really in the, in the, in the companies and the companies themselves taking this seriously. I mean, imagine what would have happened if Google, Apple, Microsoft, when, who owned this technology, if they had said, you know, this chat, now that it's been released, is obviously brilliant and it has significant uses, you know, in certain areas, but this is not something that everybody should be playing with. Instead of saying everybody uh, should be playing with it, we're going to put it in everything, uh, that we would be in a completely Jerry, different everybody place. Everybody is starting to play with it. I've never seen a technology come on faster than the one that emerged out of last November's right. corporate announcement. Right. It's already eaten into the job market. White-collar workers are fearful. Everybody from people in academia to script writers in Hollywood, not to mention a whole host of other white-collar operations, white-collar work, they feel they're going to be displaced. And there's just fear spreading all over the world. On well, this it's, it's, a, it's a rational it's fear. So, it's so decentralized. Yes, See, but it's, it's a so rational fear. It's a completely rational fear because actually, you get, if you ask it a question, it can do probably what an associate in a law firm could have done if then somebody goes over and checks his work. You know, I mean, that their people are finding that that's how they use it. They, instead of asking an associate to do a brief, they give 10 briefs and chat does it and the associate corrects his work. So the briefs aren't as good. 
they're not as imaginative. They, they, you know, they're kind of, I mean, they're not the, the, where we are now. The work is mediocre, but it's correct or filings or, and then humans kind of are, are used to sort of as cleanup. And it's no wonder people are depressed. And that's happening in so many areas of work. But I'm very fascinated by the counterfactual of how really Silicon Valley could have done differently if they had a sense of social, you know, any kind of sense of that it mattered how the society behaved. Facebook just made a decision and Microsoft made a decision that they are going to put an avatar, a chatbot, GP, you know, avatar in every product so that when you use these technologies, there's going to be a human-like person there saying that it cares about you, it loves you, it's looking out for you, for you to relate to. And they're talking about it as a cure for loneliness. And the fact that the culture is moving into a space where we're thinking about talking to machines as the cure for loneliness is terrifying. It's terrifying to me, because obviously that's not the cure for loneliness. Sherry, my sister, Claire Nader, who's written a book that you liked called You Are Your Own Best Teacher, directly addressing tweens and could be teenagers as well, about problems and challenges that they don't study in school. And it was an attempt to basically provide an antidote to their addiction to the Internet and get them to think for themselves, prepare themselves for adulthood. And I asked her, what would you ask Sherry Turkle if you asked her a question? And she said, I'd ask her that if Sherry Turkle was the omnipresent advisor to our society, she had a wide-ranging area of advice, what would she have our country do, given the short time available before these generative artificial... I have have lots of ideas. ...the world. I I have lots of ideas. I, I fantasize about being king in this domain all the time. First of all, you absolutely have legislation that treats generative AI as though it were nuclear energy. In other words, to not say, well, there's kind of an analogy, maybe there's an analogy, this is very powerful, but to really say, this is going to disrupt us and it's a national security threat. It certainly is a threat to our elections because I don't want to get into the woods here with this, but you can have a generative AI creating a whole demographic group of people writing letters that don't exist except that a generative AI created these letters. So it can wreak havoc with, unless you're extremely vigilant and the thing is controlled with, with every aspect of our, of our democracy. So I think that the amount of control that you see coming out of the White House and out of Congress is, is kind of at this point, you know, still they have a meeting, they say the companies say they're going to try. I mean, it's, it's really, they sign a paper saying that they're going to try to be transparent. It's really not enough. And you have to have a very, very strong hand in regulation of these companies. But secondly, I think there needs to be a national campaign on every level where people say, if you have a crisis, of, we, we know about the social harms from social media. We're now about to have a new kind of social harm from children and adult, growing adolescents developing relationships with fake people because those relationships are not going to nurture them so that they can grow up to be full human beings. 
You can't be in a relationship with fake, you know, Microsoft's gonna throw four fake people at them. Facebook's gonna throw four fake people at them. While you're typing, you're gonna be talking to fake people. That's the way the technology is going because people find it amusing and because it's gonna sell. And there needs to be a national program. No, no, actually you can't do that. That fake people, they call them relational objects. This is not good for human beings. And people need to be talking about this as like a real thing. In the same way we talk about carbon emissions. Carbon emissions are not a good idea. Fake pretend empathy is not a good idea. So I would really do a lot to make that problem more top of mind. And the next thing I would do is say, since loneliness is such a crisis in our country, and since fake people are not the answer, I teach at MIT and there's a whole group of people who think that the answer to loneliness is to give people robots and avatars. I say, no, what we need to do is put more money into the social infrastructure places for teens to go, places for elders to go, more playgrounds, more community centers. I mean, really, if that money we're spending on technology was put into communities, you know, education, preschools, all of that money has been taken away. And, and places for the, you know, the, the families of the kids in the preschools to go. You would be beginning to talk about the roots of our problem. We don't need to be a society that's alone together just because we have a seductive technology. We could say, you know, this has been very useful, but we don't need to give up our lives as human beings in order to do it, even if one industry thinks it's great. You know, a little bit reminds me of the car in a sense. I mean, the car had a long run in American society. And finally, people are saying, you know, this car thing, I wish we had trains. I wish we had public transportation. And this car thing is killing me. But it took, you know, it took a very long time for people to give cars a second look and to even be willing to admit what they've done to our country, to our cities, to our, you know, to our way of life. In one of your interviews, Sherry, you say something very concisely. Quote, there is study after study saying the same things. Talk to each other, experience solitude, experience boredom. Boredom is your imagination calling to you. I think it will happen slowly, end quote. This was some years ago before the generative AI emerged on the scene. I don't think I've ever faced a unrushing technology that upends almost everything that is called stability in a society, regardless of the culture around the world. And it just seems to be driven without any ethical or legal framework by extremely powerful corporate dictators. With that, I want to get Stephen David in on this before we conclude. Sure. I just wanted to ask you in, in your own life with your kids and grandchildren, what do you advise them about social media and how to handle these devices? Well, it's interesting that Steve Jobs didn't allow iPhones or iBooks in his house. No Apple products. He didn't want his children to use them. He didn't want his children to see them. He didn't want them at dinner, but he didn't want them in the house. So that was the, you know, the founder of the most seductive products that were kind of aimed at that teen market, said, not my children, because what these objects are, are they are addictive, but before they're addictive, they're delightful and they make you want to have more of them, but they close, they blinker you towards wanting just them. So the thing is to 
avoid, you know, is to is to explain to your child that no, you're we're not going to be using digital technology until you kind of have to, because what you'll learn from interacting with the world is richer. And then there'll come a point where you'll need to be doing school assignments, you'll need to be, you know, doing things in the world where you know, I will go on social media with you. I went on social media with my daughter and I'll show you how to use it. And we'll talk about the ups and downs. And then you'll have a certain number of hours of the day where you can do this. And then you really, if you do that to somebody at 12, 13, then you stick with them and you kind of monitor it for a while. You hopefully can get them on a sort of social media diet that it's reasonable. But basically you should treat it as something that's, I know, kind of a necessary evil. But nothing, you know, there are, there are groups to form, there are places for information. I mean, it's not as though there's nothing good in social media, but teenagers really should be, the skills that teenagers need to develop into, into the people who will resist this movement and take back kind of the, the society, if you wish, and, and have some resistance to Silicon Valley and make, have a consumer movement that asserts itself are not people who just spend you know, 12 hours, 13 hours a day on social media, which is what most teenagers do. If you do nothing, Sherry, you make people really think in very vibrant ways. I'm looking at a quote from you in one of your articles where you say, if we don't teach our children to be alone, they will only know how to be lonely, unquote. And another one is, quote, an eight-year-old engrossed in an online treasure hunt has mastered a rule-based game, but he didn't get the hang from his knees on a jungle gym contemplating the upside-down winter sky, unquote. David? You touched on controlling AI like we've controlled nuclear energy, and you also talked about investing more in our social infrastructures, bringing people together. Could you talk a little, please, about how similar AI is to drugs and our, our failed war on drugs? Because we blame the drugs and the drug dealers, same way we're blaming AI and the you know Silicon Valley for it. Could you talk more about how going to the roots of the demand for AI, the same way we don't address the demand for drugs in America? It's a great question. It's complicated by two things, which is that I studied the early chatbot systems, chatbots that really didn't know a whole lot the way chat GPT does. And it's, as I say, it's brethren. And people wanted to talk to even pretty stupid computers because they said the conversation made them feel less vulnerable. They felt that they could be more honest with a computer, a computer doctor doing intake. They felt that they would rather have this kind of very primitive dialogue system with a computer doctor that really wasn't empathic at all. That was pretend empathy that really wasn't, couldn't even do as well as chat because they liked the feeling of conversations without vulnerability. They were willing to trade authenticity for not feeling vulnerable to another human being. Now that desire to not feel vulnerable to another human being, to want to not have the aggravation of having friction with other people, being disappointed, being criticized, having to be resilient. I mean, all the things that go into a life. Engineers are saying, you don't have to do any of that. Have an AI, 
have an AI. So I think that the reason I'm saying you need supervision at the top, you're pointing out, and I'm also saying, is you somehow have to get a generation, and I would, I would focus my energy on a generation. You have to get a generation back into a mode of saying, you know, I want to see people. I value the face-to-face. -face. I want to go out to eat with my friends. And you even have, you know, professions like psychotherapy who used to say, oh, I'd never do anything on my phone. Or, I mean, phone psychotherapy used to be controversial. And now you have psychotherapists arguing how remote psychotherapy is better than any other kind of psychotherapy. I mean, people are justifying taking away the face-to-face -face because it's like candy to not face some of the difficulties of being a sort of person in the world. Listeners should know that Sherry Turkle is the author of a book that elaborates this. It's called Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. You can access Sherry Turkle's articles. They're all over the internet. Her name is spelled S-H-E-R-R-Y-T-U-R-K-L-E. And I hope you write even more about the way families are being isolated within their own family members from one another. I think that five, six hours a day on the iPhone by a 10-year-old separating from his or her parents' community nature is a way of breaking up families. Right. And it's, and it's in, insidious and relentless seven days a week. We're talking with Sherry Turkle, a psychologist, longtime professor, MIT, and prolific author. Unfortunately, we're out of time, Sherry. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? We want our listeners to really feed back on this program so we can discuss their reactions on future programs. But is there anything that you'd like to add before we close? Yeah, I would like to say that, that although it seems kind of impossible, that they should really reflect on your career. You know, it seemed impossible to tell motor companies that cars should be not hot rods, but places of, you know, safety and places where you had to, you know, beat your brains out about safety and standards and, and violating them and government regulations and that cars weren't sort of an expression of your personality in the American dream. And sort of technology is even more so that technology cannot be the expression of the kind of hot rod engineer mentality of Silicon Valley. You know, go fast and break things as Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, beginning mantra. That was how he started his company. And that really, you know, he's really gotten his wish. He's, you know, arguably he's broken a lot about American democracy. He's gone very quickly. And now with this chat, he's in a position to break a lot of other things too. And the idea that every product you use is going to have a fake person chatting with you is dystopian, is dystopian. A giant consumer movement, a giant consumer movement, because there are more consumers in the end than there are Silicon Valley pioneers. And we have to buy this stuff. And what happens if we don't buy this stuff? Well said. And if people feel powerless and resigned to inevitability with this technology, remember, you can control your own household. If you've got children or grandchildren, you can tutor them, excite them, look at them eye to eye, give them a dimension of self-regard and self-renewal. If you start with your own household, 
you then can branch out to your neighborhood and community and the clubs you belong to and schools from a position of experience and authority, not just wish fulfillment. Thank you very much, Sherry Turkle. I hope we can have you on again in the future because with the generative AI now commanding the headlines, there's a massive new level of urgency and knowledge and awareness that we have to communicate with each other as human beings. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We've been speaking with Sherry Turkle. We'll link to her work at ralphnativeradiohour.com. I want to thank our guests again, Bruce Fine and Sherry Turkle. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis and, in case you haven't heard, the transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Native Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimereporter.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at RalphNaderRadioR.com. Post a comment or question on this week's episode. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreaders, Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producers, Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager, Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Our guest will be Casey Fannin, president of the National Cooperative Bank. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to The Wrap-Up, where Hannah asks a question of Sherry Turkle. Hannah, you want to say something? Sherry, you've spoken about the value of teaching ourselves the capacity for solitude. And the discussion today, you've talked about teaching kids how to be a little bit more responsible, engaging with technology. How do we teach adults to grow their capacity for solitude and be more critical of technology? Seems like at least since the 2016 election cycle, we've seen what can happen when adults embrace the kind of delight of technology like Facebook and Twitter, but are a little naive about some of the the more insidious aspects? Great question. One of the things that I found when I was writing Reclaiming Conversation is that my editor kept saying, I need chapters on children. I need chapters on the crisis for children. And I would go into families and it was the parents who were on their phones and the children were begging them to get off their phones. It was the parents who would pick up, were saying, I'm making a gesture with my hands. I know this is radio, so you can't see me, but I'm making a sort of waving away gesture with my hands. The parents like on their phones waving, you know, I'll, I'll be with you in a second. Just let me finish this call. Let me finish this text. The parents have not come to terms with putting down their phone, looking at their children face to face and talking to them. And I think that the American Pediatric Society, you know, the, the whole world of American pediatricians and American psychiatric professionals got very misled or poorly served by the people who moved them into the expert advice about do so many hours a day of screen time. Because the issue really isn't screen time. Because if you're writing poetry on your computer, and you write poetry five hours a day, and this is your writing medium. It's screen time, but so what? You know what I mean? I mean, okay, 
I write my books on the computer. I don't want to count it as too much screen time. What matters is, are you doing your personal relationships on the screen? Not whether you're writing your poems or doing your art or creating fantastic, you know, worlds of design on the computer. I mean, using the computer as the best tool or the best evocative imagination extender. I mean, you know, sure, you know, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but families need to understand the deep pathology of people not looking at each other over family dinner. You have to bring back family dinner or some kind of dinner. You need to put have a place where you put away your phones. You need to have a room in the house. I suggested room in the house where the phones never go. I say one room in the house where the phones never go. I call it a sacred space. I say never a phone where there's anything involved with the cooking of food because food and eating should be a time when conversation, including the preparation time. And I think the car is an important, also sacred space because when your children in the car are in the car and you're driving, you're not doing your social media and you say to your kids, it's so important that we talk. Talking to each other is the most important thing we do. And I can't be on social media and this is a precious time for our family. And if parents understood that it's not about how many hours I should give, how many, but understood the psychology I mean, that's why I've written my books. That's kind of been my mission in my life is my life's work is to try to make people understand that the issue isn't number of hours. It's that people need to be in nature, in solitude, because in solitude, you gather yourself so that you can come to another person as a full person and accept them as a full person, which sets the groundwork for reciprocity in real relationships. And you need to be able to do that face-to-face -face with other people in order to develop a full human potential. And now here's Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Bobby Scott announced that they have introduced a new bill to raise the minimum wage. To account for the rising cost of living, this new bill would raise the wage not to $15 per hour, but $17. Sanders and Scott note that, quote, if the minimum wage had increased with productivity over the last 50 years, it would be $23 an hour today. If it had increased at the same rate that Wall Street bonuses have increased, it would be more than $42 an hour. USA Today reports that the Houston Independent School District in Texas has decided to, quote, eliminate 28 school libraries, end quote, and use at least some of those spaces as, quote, unquote, discipline centers. This article further notes that, quote, the Houston Independent School District is the largest district in Texas and serves more than 189,000 students at its 274 campuses and that the once independent district was recently taken over by the Texas Education Agency. The Intercept reports that, amid the strikes roiling Hollywood, Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania has introduced the Food Secure Strikers Act of 2023. This bill would, quote, repeal a restriction on striking workers receiving SNAP benefits, protect food stamp eligibility for public sector workers fired for striking, and clarify that any income-eligible household can receive SNAP benefits even if a member of that household is on strike, end quote. This bill would provide a crucial lifeline to striking workers, particularly as the Hollywood bosses have made clear that they are willing to see workers lose their homes before coming back to the negotiating table. 
A new report in Reuters alleges that employees at Elon Musk's Tesla Motors, quote, had been instructed to thwart any customers complaining about poor driving range from bringing their vehicles in for service, end quote. The company even went so far as to create a quote-unquote diversion team with orders to, quote, cancel as many range-related service appointments as possible, end quote, in order to stifle consumer complaints that the automobile's range on a single charge was far below advertised. According to the report, quote, some employees celebrated canceling service appointments by putting their phones on mute and striking a metal xylophone, triggering applause from coworkers who sometimes stood on desks. Bloomberg reports that the Abraham Accords, Trump's Middle East peace plan, which rested on inducing Arab states to recognize Israel by offering them money, weapons, or whatever else they desired, seem to be coming apart at the seams. The numbers are stark. While the agreements never enjoyed majority support in any Arab state, support has declined considerably, from 47% initially in the UAE to just 27%, from 45 to 20% in Bahrain, and 40% to 20% in Saudi Arabia. This last drop is most significant as the underlying purpose of the agreements were to align Israel and Saudi Arabia against Iran. The Saudis now plan to extract further concessions from the United States. Listeners may recall a story from North Carolina about Trisha Cotham, a Democratic state legislator from a safe blue seat who switched parties, giving Republicans a supermajority in the state house and cast the deciding vote to override the Democratic governor's veto and impose a 12-week abortion ban. Now, a New York Times report sheds light on why she made the switch. Quote, Lacey Williams, a former advocacy director at the Charlotte-based Latin American coalition who considered Ms. Cotham a friend for years, said Ms. Cotham felt that she did not get the gratitude or spotlight that she felt she deserved, end quote, and added, quote, she was jealous that other Democrats were getting adulation from the party, end quote. This report also suggests that she was working hand in glove with Republican leadership prior to her election, suggesting that perhaps this was her plan all along. In Julian Assange's native Australia, political officials are calling on the U.S. to drop their efforts to extradite the publisher to the United States to stand trial under the Espionage Act. These officials include Foreign Minister Penny Wong and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. Democracy Now! reports that U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has rejected this demand, claiming that the WikiLeaks disclosures, quote, risked very serious harm to our national security, to the benefit of our adversaries, and put named human sources at grave risk, end quote. Australian lawmaker Andrew Wilkie, co-chair of the Bring Julian Assange Home Parliamentary Group, called this, quote, patent nonsense and told The Guardian, quote, Mr. Blinken would be well aware of the inquiries in both the U.S. and Australia, which found that the relevant WikiLeaks disclosures did not result in harm to anyone. Finally, former President Donald Trump has been indicted for the third time, this time on four counts related to trying to overturn the 2020 election. Yet, what is most striking about this indictment is that Trump is being charged under the Enforcement Act of 1870, originally intended to prevent Ku Klux Klan terror to deprive Black voters of their 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment rights. Section 241 of this law deems criminal any attempt to, quote, conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person, end quote, exercising a right protected by the Constitution or federal law, per the Washington Post. Charging Trump under the Klan Act may seem a bit on the nose, but hey, if the hood fits. I'm Francesco DeSantis. And this has been In Case You Haven't Heard.
Hi, everybody. Steve Scrovan here. One last thing. This is halfway between a shameless plug and some useful information. As some of you may know, I have my own Substack page called Bits and Pieces. It's mainly funny stories and essays and stuff like that. But I wanted to alert you specifically to the last piece I wrote concerning the Writers Guild strike. It's funny, but also packed with a lot of information for those of you who are interested. Some of you may think writers and actors striking is not a big deal, but our strike is emblematic of what is going on across many industries where the corporations are trying to turn us all into gig workers while the executives make money hand over fist. On the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, we have talked a lot about AI, for instance, especially in the program you just heard. The writers and the actors have a chance to be the first entities to address regulating AI in a meaningful way. We are on the cutting edge of what people are calling the hot labor summer. So check out my piece at stevesgrovan.substack.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-S-K-R-O-V-A-N.substack.com. We'll link to it on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour page also. Feel free to subscribe. It's free. Thanks. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we speak to Casey Fannin, president of something called the National Cooperative Bank. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long.